According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Jeremiah this morning, and we come to one of my favorite chapters, Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23. It's a toss-up, I think, between 23 and 31, which is my favorite chapter in the whole book. Jeremiah 31 deals with the uh, new covenant and things that we have to look forward to in Christ and the millennial kingdom, but Jeremiah 23 speaks to shepherding, and we reach a subject that, um, that I love, and because I am a shepherd, and we have shepherding that takes place here at Austin Bible Church, and we're privileged to be able to train uh, all spiritual gifts, including pastor teachers, and we've had the blessing to send men out from here that are not only uh, expositors and exegetes and teachers of academic truth, but also have the shepherd heart to be able to shepherd the souls as they are designed to do in the church age. It's a message of woe. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside distractions and to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege that we have to assemble together this morning. We thank You for the grace that allows us to be here, for the freedom that allows us to be here. Father, things that we're seeing uh, diminish in our generation, and yet today they still uh, they are still provided, and we thank you for that. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us in the truth of your word. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we begin with woe to the shepherds in verses one through four. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering. The sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. That's not what shepherds should be doing. It's the opposite of what shepherds should be doing. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord, that I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord." All right, we have four verses here that relate to shepherding in a passage that connects so well with much of the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike, that stress the impact of shepherding uh, within a body of, uh, of uh, the redeemed. All right, In the Old Testament, it was the body of Israel, was the redeemed people of God, a covenant earthly nation in the midst of Gentile nations. And for us in the church age, of course, we're a body of redeemed people in the body of Christ, a heavenly people that are called out from all the nations of the earth. So there's a shepherding application in both Israel and the church. Each one has a shepherding application. Understand the Lord is a shepherd. David said that in Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is a shepherd and he holds his under shepherds to high standards. He holds his under shepherds to high 
standards. And nowhere in the Bible do we actually have the phrase under shepherd. We simply have shepherds with a recognition that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd. He has those titles. We understand that every shepherd is an under shepherd because they are accountable to Jesus Christ himself. And so I don't have any problem with the term under shepherd, theologically speaking. Just recognize you won't find it in, uh, in a particular verse. Uh, but we have Jeremiah 23 that addresses this. It comes back again in Jeremiah 31. It was actually introduced, we had it in Isaiah, you might recall. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11. A very long text, a whole chapter of Ezekiel 34 is given over to a, a, a message very similar to what we have today. It is a message of woe. It is a rebuke to the faithless shepherds of Israel. Zechariah, we've got eschatological passages related to shepherds in Zechariah chapter 11. In fact, some that pertain to Christ in the rejection of his day. Psalm 23 is maybe the most famous. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He, and we, we understand the, the verses there. Psalm 100 and verse 3, which we may not be as familiar with, but we should be. We should have all of Psalm 100 memorized in this uh, capacity. Uh, John 10 and uh, verse 11, Jesus Christ said, I am the good shepherd. And by the way, if, if there was anyone that still today wants to cling to the mythology that Jesus never claimed to be God, uh, they're just lying. They're, they're delusional. He, Jesus claimed deity on multiple levels and multiple times. And if you're honest with the text of the Gospel of John, it becomes undeniable. Every I am statement is a statement of, of Yahweh. It's a statement of the Lord from the Old Testament. And then when he goes so far as to say, I am the good shepherd, he just doubled down on the, on the reality that he is Yahweh from the Old Testament because Yahweh is the good shepherd. So we have the statement there. Uh, Peter addresses this in 1 Peter 2.25 and 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. All right, And so all of these texts uh, are vital. And if I take the whole hour and never get off this slide, you will be blessed today. And I will be disappointed because i got more slides I want to get to. But I could get lost just on this slide right here. I taught a series once called Significant Shepherding Passages. And it's, uh, it's interesting. You know, the first martyr was a shepherd. Okay, Cain murdered Abel. And... Uh, what do, you, what do you know? I mean, right from the, the earliest stages of Scripture, we understand that shepherding uh, has its hazards, and it comes from the hands of those that serve Satan and, uh, and hate the things of the Lord. Um, but we can look at a handful of these. I, don't, I didn't versify the slide today, so, I'm, uh, so we can't. You're going to have to do your own flipping. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. And so a rebuke to all the Gentile nations addresses this and specifically warns them that Yahweh is their shepherd. Remember, the prime factor for uh, foreign uh, policy in any Gentile nation is, are we blessing the Jews? Because if we're cursing the Jews, we're going to come under Yahweh's curse. And that's been the truth ever since Genesis 12, all right? It's been a promise, and we need to be aware of that, especially if we have a president and an administration that consistently aligns itself with the Muslim Brotherhood and consistently attacks the, uh, the nation-state of Israel. Uh, Isaiah 40 in verse 11, in an eschatological passage, Isaiah 40, and you see how tender this is. Isaiah 40, remember what's the 40th chapter in Isaiah? It's 
the first chapter after the 39 chapters of, of woe, the 39 chapters of Old Testament parallel, right? As, as Isaiah is a miniature Bible. 39 chapters of judgment. Starting in chapter 40, we have comfort, oh comfort, my people Israel. And um, in chapter 40, in the context of introducing this comfort, he introduces the shepherding principle. How he comes with might, he's going to conquer. Isaiah 40 and verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. This was a question from Wednesday night. Doug was asking this. What's the reward? Well, it's better than the recompense, right? The reward is with him. The recompense is before him. Where do you want to be? Do you want to be before him, uh, downrange, if you will, on the business end of of the sword? Or do you want to be with him, with the reward with the uh, the conquering armies like a shepherd he will tend his flock in his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom he will gently lead the nursing ewes and i love this i don't know that i stressed this when we were in isaiah but you know he's he's got both arms are engaged one arm is conquering and the other arm is tenderly carrying the 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 little lamb all right and uh Seems like he's got his arms full, but he can handle it, right? We're, we're good with this. So there's uh, Isaiah 40. I'm not going to read an entire chapter of Ezekiel 34 for you, but understand it's very similar to what we're looking at today in Jeremiah 23. It is a message of woe, and it really expands upon Jeremiah 23 in, in large respect because it says what you're not doing is what you should be doing, and I myself am going to do it. And, uh, and by the way, like Donald Trump says, you're fired, all right? Uh, Yahweh has no problem firing his shepherds when they're not shepherding his sheep. And uh, without reading the entire chapter, just to uh, highlight a couple of these verses. Uh, You know, it's remarkable. The Lord is the head of the church. He is the great shepherd. He is the the one that provides the accountability for every under-shepherd on this planet. And it's remarkable that the kind of believers who take it upon themselves <laughs> to be their own personal uh, pastor correction committee, and, and they form groups to join along with them to try to fix the pastor. Trust me, it's not necessary. Jesus Christ is far better at it than you'll ever be, and he's already way ahead of you as far as anything you've spotted, any flaws that you think you've observed that you think you're going to fix, uh, Jesus is way ahead of you on that. From eternity past, he has known uh, what needs to be done with the knuckleheads that he calls to, to fill pulpits in, uh, in different places. He's uh, preached through donkeys before, and he uh, does so quite often. All right. But in Ezekiel 34, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock. And so again, it's a message. You're dropping the ball. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, and you're fired. I'm going to do what you should have been doing. All right. And uh, we see it here. Uh, You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity you have dominated them. Okay? Underline that. Mark that down. Husbands, anyone in leadership, 
Force and severity is not a leadership style. Okay? Not a biblical style. It has no sanction in, in the Old Testament or the New Testament for the servant leadership we're supposed to be modeling and, and emulating as we, as we imitate Christ. Notice, they were scattered for a lack of a shepherd. They didn't have a shepherd. They had you, and you weren't shepherding. And so the point is, because they had you, they didn't have a shepherd. How many people are filling an office but aren't doing the job? So my flock, so they became food. You know what sheep without a shepherd are called? I just read it. They're called food, okay? There's no such thing as this wild, uh, you know, feral sheep that just, you know, roams the, the lone wolf or the lone sheep rogue. It doesn't exist. All right. No, without the shepherd, they are scattered and they are food. So therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord, as I live, declares the Lord. Oh, man. The God who cannot lie is taking a vow. And he stakes his vow on as I live, the God who cannot die. So the God who cannot lie takes a vow, staking his own life on the truthfulness of what he's saying. My prey, my, my flock has become a prey. And so you're fired. I'm against you. He says, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. I am against the shepherds in verse 10. I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. That's it. Okay? God will take care of the sheep. The sheep that are hungry, believers that are hungry for doctrine, God will provide. Jehovah Jireh still exists. If you want truth, he will provide. If you want your ears tickled, you can provide for that yourself. And, and that's very common in our day and age. People will, will want their ears tickled and they, they accumulate for themselves, teachers according to their own desire. But if you want to be fed the meat of the word of God, God will provide. Jehovah Jireh will provide. There's a ram caught in the thicket and he will provide. All right. He is faithful at doing this. Because they're not, I will. And that's what he says here in verses 11 and following. And uh, we can be thankful for that. Okay. So many principles in that. Like I say, I could get lost. I could spend the whole hour just on this one slide. Um, but recognize that Jesus Christ walks in the midst of every lampstand. He holds the stars in his right hand. Okay, seven lampstands, seven stars. And the star of every lampstand is the pastor of that lampstand. He holds those stars in his right hand. He is very capable of dealing with the under-shepherds. The under-shepherd is accountable to the great shepherd. As these passages, uh, 1 Peter makes clear, these passages, all of these passages make clear. Okay? <laughs> and so we don't need we had a, a visitor, or not a visitor, she threatened to visit us. She called me on the phone and uh, quizzed me on our doctrinal statement and asked about Austin Bible Church and like I have time for this and and then she said well I'm thinking about visiting and she says because my ministry is straightening out pastors that have bad doctrine <laughs> and I said well thank you for calling what was your name again and she told me her name was Mary and she's in a wheelchair she asked if we were handicap accessible and whatever and I said well yes we are <laughs> Um, you said your name was Mary. All right. So every time we've had visitors in wheelchairs, I've been suspicious and I make sure their name's not Mary. All right. Because we don't need that kind of a ministry. It's not a biblical ministry. And Jesus Christ, like I say, is way ahead of Mary and anyone else that uh, thinks that, that they're called to, uh, to fix pastors. All right. Zechariah 11. 
if you're not as familiar with this, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah chapter 11. You say, well, who pays attention to Zechariah? Well, we should. Um, Jesus quoted Zechariah and the disciples didn't believe him. And uh, I think it's important. If it was important for the Lord to minister on the night in which he was betrayed, I think it's important for us as well. Again, uh, I'm not going to read an entire chapter to you here, but you'll notice as it ends, uh, woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. And um, the, uh, let's see, verse 3, there's a sound of the shepherd's wail, for their glory is ruined. There's the sound of the young lion's roar, for the pride of Jordan is ruined. So when the lions are celebrating and the shepherds are wailing, that's not a happy day right? That's not a good day for the sheep. <laughs> the sheep don't want to hear the lions roaring and the shepherding wailing. That's, they want to kind of hear the other way around. They want to hear the shepherds rejoicing and they want to hear the, the dead lion um, screaming in pain. And so um, here comes the admonition. And, the, and thus says the Lord my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Not a pleasant uh, assignment. And uh, those who buy them slay, uh, thus says the Lord, my God, verse 4, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, blessed be the Lord, for I become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. They're doing the same thing that they were doing in Jeremiah's day and in Ezekiel's day. They were just profiting off the sheep and saying, hey, praise the Lord. I made another buck off of this sheep I just sold. And uh, so forth. So Zechariah does it. I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs, the one I called favor and the other I called union. So I pastured the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month for my soul was impatient with them and their soul also was weary, uh, was weary of me. All right. It's, um, it's an interesting uh, chapter. Um, getting on down here. Notice we have 30 shekels of silver in verse 12. I said to them, if it is good in your side, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And then he smashes the, cuts the staff in half. And we have the uh, rebuke here to the foolish shepherds. Uh, verse 16, Behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs. All right, this is, uh, this is a sad day. And you know, and Jesus prophesied and said, the hour is coming and you are all going to be scattered for lack of a, she- of a shepherd. He tries to, he's, on the night in which he's betrayed, he's quoting Zechariah. And Peter has the temerity to say, far be it from thee, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I will never deny you. And all the disciples were saying the same thing Peter was saying. And they're saying, what are they saying? They're saying, Zechariah is a liar. Scripture can be broken. Uh, Jesus, you're a liar. What are they saying? When they say, far be it from thee, Zechariah shall not be fulfilled. (laughs) Okay. Oh, it's horrible. The, uh, the lack of faith of those disciples. And they were the ones that were um, with the program. 
if you will. Anyway, it crosses over. We get into chapter 13. There's more shepherding there as well. Um, I'm just going to have to let that go. All right. Uh, Psalm 23, we're familiar with. The Lord is my shepherd, right? Think about the beauties of, of this shepherding. And you understand the metaphor is applied to people. Okay, we're not talking about literal shepherds and literal sheep. We're talking about the prophets, the priests, the kings, the tribal elders, the husbands, the fathers, those that should be shepherding the people, ministering the word of God. And they're not. They're not ministering the word of God in their day and age. And so the good shepherd is rebuking them. Psalm 23. I taught this once in uh, Ukraine. I was requested if I would teach Hebrew poetry at the Word of God Bible College in Kiev, Ukraine. And so I went as an English speaker teaching Hebrew poetry to uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians. And uh, it was It was interesting. What's fun about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We get nine words in English. It's only four words in Hebrew. The, the, uh, the beauty of, of the Hebrew poetry and the, the symmetry and the, the conciseness is, uh, is amazing. Uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. There it is. What's the shepherd supposed to be doing? What's he supposed to be doing? Is it about uh, uh, a tax bracket? Is it about an income? Is it about the, the uh, square footage of the house he provides for his children? Is it about the college he puts them through? Is it about the paths of righteousness? If his, if his family is not in the Word of God being led into the paths of righteousness, what's he doing? If a local church is not in the Word of God, being led in the paths of righteousness, what's he doing? All right. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There you go. There's a seminary curriculum right there <laughs> for the pastor-teacher gift. All right, everything that a, that a flock needs in in a beautiful, concise poem. We are His people and the sheep of His uh, pasture. We're told in Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. That's Psalm 100 right there. Again, concise, poetic, beautiful. We didn't make ourselves. Why do we think we can shepherd ourselves? Why do we think we can be that rogue feral sheep out there in the world? No, he is our shepherd. We need him on this daily basis. John 10, 11. This is the, the text that uh, Corpus Christi Bible Church is making use of right now. Pastor Dan Craw is, is uh, candidating and they are viewing that exercise on a spiritual basis, not a secular basis. They're not reviewing resumes. They're not viewing things as a corporate body or trying to hire a CEO. 
They are viewing it as a flock in the will of God and seeking the will of God. And um, in this uh, context here, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. There's an identification that takes place, that a sheep knows the voice of their shepherd. The voice of the robber, they won't, they won't follow, they won't... Uh, but the, the voice of the shepherd, they know. See, uh, back up to verse 5 and you see that. Verse 4 says, The sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. And this is a principle. And they're praying for this right now in Corpus Christi. They want to hear the voice of their shepherd. They don't want to follow a stranger. And they want the Lord to lead them in this. And likewise, they know me and I know them, is what uh, verse 14 says here. And so this is the, the, the tandem that we're praying about for Pastor Dan and Stephanie and the flock there in Corpus Christi. 1 Peter 2.25, Jesus is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. 1 Peter 2 and verse 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Why did he die on the cross? Not so that we could keep up our carnality uh, schedule. No, so we could live in righteousness with him. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. What a title and what a privilege, what a blessing to know that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And even if the, 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 the knucklehead that wears the suit and tie on Sundays, if, if, if he falls short, you're okay still because the good shepherd is the one that's in charge. The good shepherd is the one that's going to take care of things when the hungry sheep need to be fed. Same book, back to chapter 5 then. Here's Peter's admonishment. I exhort the elders among you, Shepherd, verse 2 says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Whose flock is it? It's God's flock. And these elders are commanded to shepherd and to oversee. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Anything that's by compulsion, that's forced, is not the will of God. Voluntarily. Remember, God loves the cheerful giver. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. Same thing, God loves the cheerful shepherd, not uh, under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not a hired man, a shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Lording it. Take the noun kurios for lord and turn that into a verb and lording it. We're not lording anything because we're not the Lord. Human shepherds serve the Lord. And the Lord can lord. Okay? He can lord and I can shepherd. 
over those allotted to your charge. Notice that? Allotted to your charge. That's the biggest factor right there in that verse. Again, that's what Corpus Christi is praying about. Have we been allotted to the charge of Pastor Dan Craw? That's their number one question. If we hear the voice of our shepherd, if we know our shepherd, if he knows us, if we know that we have been allotted to his charge and he knows that we have been allotted to his charge, then that's the only criteria we need to consider. Let's vote on it right here, right now. Let's testify to our faith conviction right here, right now. You know, this ought to be the number one and the number one and number last, the one and only decision-making process on what church I attend or what church you attend, okay? I, I attend the church I pastor, but you attend, you know, and ask yourself, you know, and, and people have these lists of, well, you know, what's, what's the music program like? What's the nursery like? What's the Sunday school like? What's the bowling league like? What's the singles ministry like? And, you know, do they have a Lonely Hearts Club? Can I meet something, you know, all this other stuff? Is it, is it too far to drive? Is it nearby? You know, is it convenient for a commute? All these things and all these factors and all this. There, this verse gives us one and one criteria only. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. I ask myself, or any believer should ask themselves, who have I been allotted to? Say, and sometimes I, I creep visitors out. I, say, I tell visitors, I say, you may not have been allotted to my charge. If so, I trust that, that Jesus Christ will take you to another church where you'll visit, where you will hear the voice of your shepherd. And you will know to whom you have been allotted. Because I don't want to steal sheep that aren't allotted to me. All right? And sometimes visitors get kind of freaked out by that. Like, what do you mean? You want me to go visit other churches? I want you, if, if you're my sheep, then you'll know it and I'll know it. And we're cool. But if, if, if you're not my sheep, if you've been allotted to somebody else's charge, man, I, wouldn't, I don't want that. You don't want that. You want to go to the man that's been assigned to your soul. Proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See that? The reward is when the chief shepherd appears. Not before. Not promised anything today. But in due time we will so reap if we do not grow weary. So there's the shepherding role of Jesus Christ. Shepherds are the kings, princes, elders, priests, prophets, husbands, and fathers. Men that are in leadership position, men and women in the case of parents, women that shepherd their children. But primarily it's the men that are held accountable. The husbands to shepherd their wives, the kings, the princes, the tribal elders. Each of the 12 tribes had their elders. When they don't attend to their charges, the Lord attends to them. There's accountability in Jeremiah 23.2, Ezekiel 34.10. We just saw 1 Peter 5, allotted to your charge in verse 4. Uh, Another verse in Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders as those who will give an account. They're accountable to the Lord for how they shepherd your soul. All right, we get through the shepherding verses and we get to the branch verses. David's branch Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8. Another beautiful text I could spend a whole hour on, spend a month on. Something that Satan likes to pervert, something that cults. You remember uh, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians? Man, I hope he was saved. 
but I wonder. You get involved in these kind of cults. All right. Jeremiah 23. There's a beautiful doctrine here as it pertains to the branch. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Every time Jeremiah says days are coming, there's something beautiful related to the second advent. Okay? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. It will not be a political election in November of 2016. All right? This is not our promise for the November elections, but a righteous king who will do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Remember, they're a divided kingdom. In Jeremiah's day, they're a divided kingdom with the northern kingdom already swept away. And all that was left is the, the southern kingdom of Judah. But they're promised a restoration, Judah and Israel. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, here's what they will say, as the Lord lives who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the northland and from all the countries where I have driven them, then they will live on their own soil. We have a replacement for their previous um, statements that gets replaced. We saw this in chapter 16 already. But here's David's branch. He's called a root, a shoot, and a branch, depending on the verse you're looking at. And sometimes the root, the shoot, and the branch interchange the different Hebrew terms. And, I, and that bugs me every time I see it. All right? Because sometimes it's not there, and sometimes uh, it's something else. And, and um, anyway, I would like my root to be the same word every time, my shoot to be the same word every time, and my branch to be the same word every time. But it doesn't always work like that. Anyway, a root, a shoot, and a branch. And the concepts are, are fun anyway because a shoot is just the tiny little thing that just pops up out of the ground. It's just the first little glimpse of what you can see. And when I think about the, the virgin birth and I think about the babe in the manger and the humility of first advent, you know, we've got the, the root and the shoot and how, how tender that is. And then, of course, the branch. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, introduced by Isaiah, chapter 4, chapter 11, chapter 53, subsequently spoken of by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 17, and Zechariah again, Zechariah in chapter 3 and chapter 6. And I would encourage you to study the root, the shoot, and the branch and see the, the prophecies that are fulfilled in a person, in an individual, in the beloved Son, in the one and only Messiah. These are Messianic Davidic promises. And uh, those uh, horrible people that, that subscribe to replacement theology, that, that want to steal all of the blessings for Israel and, and abscond with them and apply them spiritually to the church, um, these, these texts don't let you do that. Israel has a future, David has a future, and it's in his son in the, the Davidic throne in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and I hope we can understand this, all right? But Isaiah 4 and verse 2, don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this because we taught Isaiah not long ago, and all those Isaiah MP3 files, what are they doing? They're sitting on the website minding their own MP3 business, that's right, you can go get them anytime you want and listen to uh, Isaiah chapter 4. 
Seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. And in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and adornment of the survivors of Israel. And so there we have it. It's a future eschatological promise for the Jewish people. We've got Emmanuel in verse chapter 7. We've got the Eternal Father. Isaiah 11. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Oh, there's so much here. Um... Are you looking for a perfect politician? He's right here in Isaiah chapter 11. He's not on the ballot in November. okay? But he's right here in Isaiah chapter 11. And he is coming again. He will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. All of this is millennial. Okay, we studied this. This was back in Isaiah chapter 11. Encourage you to uh, review those Isaiah classes. Uh, chapter 9 is where we have the uh, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Okay? We've got the promises that are here. All right. Um, I know I'm going quickly. Isaiah 53 and verse 2. Isaiah 53. And this is not Communion Sunday, by the way. That's good. Get 15 extra minutes. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He wouldn't do well in ministries today. <laughs> okay, he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't score high on people's pulpit uh, examinations or wouldn't do well with missionary agencies, wouldn't do well on, in political campaigns. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and forsaken of man. And this is our Savior right here. What a description. But there's the root, shoot, and branch language. Ezekiel 17, Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 6. I'm going to have to let those go. His royal name will be Emmanuel Yahweh Tzitkenu. I think uh, I like to combine Isaiah 7 with Jeremiah 23. His, he will be called Emmanuel. He never took that name in First Advent. He was known as Jesus in First Advent when he came to save us from our sins. But I believe Isaiah 7 says, a virgin shall, bear, uh, shall have a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. And that will be a name he will claim as a royal name. It's, it's common. Kings will choose a new name upon their ascension to the throne. Shalom becomes Jehoahaz, for example, and some of these other kings that take different names. Remember short shrift shalom from last week? Okay. Or Jehoiakim. 
All right. Emmanuel, Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Emmanuel, God is with us. The Lord our righteousness. Israel's eschatological global exodus will forever eclipse their historical Egyptian exodus. They're no longer going to say, as the Lord lives, who delivered us from the land of Egypt. You know, that's always been their motto. They are the chosen people. They are the ones who were redeemed. They know they're the chosen people because the Lord brought them out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. And to this day, in in modern times, He's still the Lord who brought them out of Egypt, the Lord their Redeemer. That's not going to be mentioned again after Second Advent. Because they will experience a global exodus. And that will forever eclipse their historical Egyptian exodus. All right? That's the concept that we taught a few chapters ago back in chapter 16 when similar verses were recorded. So they will never again say, as the Lord lives, who delivered the hands of Israel out of the land of Egypt. It will be, as the Lord lives, who brought us from the four corners of the earth and who presently is seated on the throne of David. That's what they will look forward to. All right, then the bulk of the chapter, verses 9 through 40. The bulk of this chapter records judgment against the false prophets of Israel and Judah. The bulk of this chapter records judgment against the false prophets of Israel and Judah. And we got a string of things. In fact, I got seven bullet points for the rest of the chapter. Uh, Once we, you know, I thought I'd spend my whole time on shepherding, in verses 1 through 4, or on ranch, branch, and, and uh, shoot in, uh, or root, shoot, and branch, I'm sorry, root, shoot, and branch in verses 5 through 8, all right? I almost said eats, shoots, and leaves, and that's, uh, that's a different book if you're familiar with that. All right, but judgment, as for the prophets, my heart is broken within me. You know, in many of us, in fact, all of us, you live in a generation that just breaks your heart. You're looking around and you're seeing what you never thought you'd see. And instead of the Word of God being a priority, you see lies that are magnified. And you see a people who used to hunger for truth, and they're not hungering for truth anymore. And it's just heartbroken. And we have recorded here Jeremiah's heartbreak, similar to Isaiah's heartbreak. Jeremiah's heart is broken like Isaiah's was in his day. And uh, parallel here between uh, verse 9 of this chapter and Isaiah's heartbreak in Isaiah 22.4. But as for the prophets, you know, you'd like to have some peers, but they're in Babylon. Daniel and Ezekiel got carried away. And so who's Jeremiah left with? whole bunch of liars, okay? A bunch of false prophets. People that are contradicting his message. All my bones tremble. I have become like a drunken man, even like a man overcome with wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. And so there you have it. When you're the one guy telling the truth and everybody else is lying, you're like the town drunk that everybody just laughs at and says, oh, there he goes again. Listen to this lunatic and uh, heartbreak for the land is full of adulterers the land mourns because of the curse the pastures of the wilderness have dried up their course also is evil and their might is not right you ever heard the expression might makes right you ever wondered where that comes from 
And um, both the prophet and priest are polluted. Even in my house I have found their wickedness, declares the Lord. And so what we deal with here in these verses, let me get down through verse 12, 10, 11, and 12. Their way, therefore, their way will be like slippery paths to them. You wonder where the term slippery slope comes from? And uh, they will be driven away into the gloom and fall down in it, for I will bring calamity upon them. The year of their punishment declares the Lord. And so we see the principles as they're applied here. Prophet and priest are polluted. Prophet and priest are polluted. Um, you'll note in this, we've already taught this way back in chapter 3, but the, the connection between adultery and pollution, the consequences of sexual sin with national discipline, what happens to the land, how is it that territory is defiled? Again, we keep having this tandem here where the bloodshed uh, or where the, uh, the, the promiscuity produces. There's two things that will pollute the land, sexual promiscuity and bloodshed, the shedding of innocent blood. And, and they're both rampant in our day. They were rampant in Jeremiah's day. And so, uh, again, vocabulary and principles we already referenced back in chapter 3. I would encourage you to review those notes and take a look at those. Also, Numbers 35 and verse 33 makes it clear. Land becomes polluted by virtue of our sin. Psalm 106 and verse 38. And I look around and I wonder, man, we got so much pollution now, not even a Superfund cleanup is going to do anything. It's going to take the fire of the of the destruction of the heavens and the earth and the production of new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How in the world can we cleanse the land of all the pollution that we've done? See, this is why, you know, it's, uh, we talk about environmental impact statements on a, on a biblical basis, all right? The environmentalists don't have a clue. The, the tree-hugging, whale-kissing, you know, cloud-sniffing flowers, or cloud-hopping flower-sniffers, they don't have a clue as it relates to the real environmental impact that happens when the hand of God's judgment administers a curse upon the land. Animals, trees, birds, land are all affected by human sin. So I encourage you to read those verses if you have any questions from Numbers 35 or Psalm 106. Uh, well, let's grab Numbers real quick. Numbers 35, 33. And this is where uh, it might have been worth versifying these slides. <laughs> All right, Numbers 35. And um, verse 30 says, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death, that the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it. Notice, there's a separate expiation, there's a separate principle 
penalty that is assigned, not only for the sin, but also for the damage that's done to the land. You know, when your EPA floods a mine, oh, wait a minute, okay, and all of a sudden a whole river is just polluted because of what your government did, there should be a price paid, but there's not when it's your government never pays the price. All right. Um, so here's the blood pollutes the land and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of which I dwell for I the Lord am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. So there's a principle. And when the defilement gets so full it's, it vomits. It actually vomits out the inhabitants of the land. And God gives that land to new inhabitants. All right? And this is the historical record that, uh, that we see throughout human history. It's laid out for us in the scriptures. All right. The prophets of Samaria and Jerusalem will be made to eat wormwood as the consequence of their presumptuous and pretentious prophetic malpractice. Verses 13 through 15 And boy, when you start studying Wormwood, that takes you into Revelation and eschatology and all kinds of deep things. It's just a bitter plant, okay? But it's assigned uh, as the name of an angel that's thrown down to the earth in the tribulation. Uh, Verses 13 through 15, Moreover, among the prophets of Samaria I saw an offensive thing. Now that was the capital of the northern kingdom before they got swept away. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. Also among the prophets of Jerusalem I've seen a horrible thing. The committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I'm going to feed them wormwood. Make them drink poisonous water, for from the prophets of Jerusalem, pollution has gone forth into all the land. And so there's judgment there. All right? Presumptuous and pretentious, prophetic malpractice. These guys were so presumptuous as to say, Thus saith the Lord, when they were just making it up. It was, it was their own imaginations, their own dreams. And so they encounter the Lord's rebuke. Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? I love this. Verses 16 and following. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. And so you ask yourself, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm listening to a false prophet or a real prophet? How do I know? Again, go back to those shepherding passages and be comforted. A sheep who wants to know will know. A sheep who wants to hear the voice of their shepherd will hear the voice of their shepherd. If you are hungry, the good shepherd will feed you. When you want to know the truth, if you want to do his will, you will know of the teaching, whether I speak from God or whether I'm speaking from myself. Jesus promised that, and you will know. So if you just ask yourself in your own honesty, did I accumulate an ear tickler here? Or am I humble before the Lord? And, and is he oftentimes giving me messages I don't want to hear? <laughs> All right. Is he speaking the truth whether I want it or not? Then you know you've got a shepherd. You don't have a, a phony. And uh, verse 17, they keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said you will have peace. Peace. 
In other words, since you hate the Lord, you hate the truth, these liars will tell you what you want to hear. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. No, you're good. Everything's great. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? What a wonderful question. Who has stood? We have. Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? This question is both human and angelic. And best of all, the answer is us. In the church age, we have the mind of Christ. The church has the Spirit of God. The church has the mind of Christ. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 16, and you can answer this question for yourself. Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? I have. Because I've been made a believer priest and given God the Holy Spirit. And I learn all things, even the deep things of God. What an application. Leaving it in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament context, humans in the will of God, keeping in the counsel of God, and even angelic applications. Job 15, Isaiah 40, we've got angelic applications in these chapters. In some cases, I think the fallen angels were rather put out rather offended the divine counsel looking at these cockroaches these human cockroaches can't believe that god and his majesty would have such a plan towards these dust creatures <laughs> these pathetic mortal temporal weak dust creatures and yet the son of god in uh, the son of man is faithfully executing the plan of God the Father in this regard. It's extraordinary as you consider these things. So take Jeremiah 23, uh, look over to Amos chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. In Amos we've got um, some good applications there about being in the counsel of God. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you think of his counsel, he invites us in He's not requesting input. (laughs) He's not asking for our uh, recommendations or suggestions. But he is cluing us in to what he intends. And he is blessing us with his plan, his program, his will, his guidance, his leadership. And then you start to think, wow, who am I? (laughs) Why should I be invited into these plans? Why should he share with me? What is man, what is the son of man that you should regard us? When you're reading through the, the Job passage too, you're going to find some of the angelic grumbling, some of the, the, the sniping at fallen man, and uh, the, the complaining on the part of the fallen angels about how unfair God is. You'll see little glimpses of that that come out in uh, Eliphaz's speech. So best of all, the church has the Spirit of God. We have the mind of Christ. I'll just grab this one. 1 Corinthians 2 Verse 10 and verse 16. What a provision. You see, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages for our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Satan blew it at the cross and didn't even know. When they crucified the Christ, they were were nailing their own defeat. 
Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. You get down to verse 16. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What a privilege. Okay? What a privilege. The quote comes out of Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14 there. That's us in the body of Christ. You know, only Moses in the Old Testament could go into that tabernacle and meet with the Lord face to face and come out and and relate to the people. You and I all get to be face to face with Jesus Christ. You and I all get to be in that face to face transformation in the Word of God. What a blessing. Verse 23, Yahweh is nearby and knowable. He is nearby and knowable. You see, all these other guys, these phonies, they kept preaching peace, and uh, they weren't standing in the council of the Lord. If they'd been standing in the council of the Lord, they would have known that um, judgment is coming, that the the anger of the Lord will not be turned back. Um, All right, see verse 21, I did not send these prophets. Verse 20, I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. Verse 22, if they had stood in my counsel, they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. But sadly, they did not because they were not. Verse 23, am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Here's another rhetorical question and answer it yourself in the context of the church age because he is nearby. He is knowable. He walks in the midst of the lampstands. What does that mean? Well, is Austin Bible Church a lampstand? Then where's Jesus Christ? Right here, right now. He is nearby and He's knowable. He's designed our stewardship as such that we fellowship with Him. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. He is nearby and He is knowable. He's not a God who's far off. He's not a God who's on a journey. He's not a God that just you know, wound up the universe like a clockmaker and then stepped back and now he's hands off. Okay? And we can just live our lives and have fun and do whatever we want because he's, he's not nearby. He's not knowable. He's not really watching what's happening. He's the absentee landlord. Not true. Not true. And I think we've got too many people that never knew their fathers and have, have grew up without a father or they have an, uh, an absentee father. They don't realize that's not our father. That's not God the Father. He's not absent. He's right here with us. And his son is right here with us as the head of the church. He's nearby and he's knowable. Acts 17 talks about this. He's nearby and he's knowable. Call upon the Lord while he is near. Psalm 34 and verse 18. I love Psalm 34. He's knowable. He is nearby. How near is the Lord? And if if he's not near, well then, who put that wedge there in your fellowship? if you find that he's not as near as he used to be, rephrase that. You're not as near as you used to be. Okay? In uh, your intimacy with him. The righteous cry, the Lord hears and delivers them all out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. What a promise. And of course, the pinnacle is Jesus Christ. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. 
It's a prophecy of the cross. All right. Psalm 145 and verse 18, Isaiah 55 and verse 6, Acts 17, 27 and 28. The Lord is nearby and He's knowable. And this is the purpose for nations. His hand in human history. Acts 17, 26, 27 and 28. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. A Gentile nation better realize that their existence is dependent upon the freedom that they provide for the gospel to be preached. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. And if we don't have freedom in our land to preach the gospel, who, uh, to communicate Christ who's nearby and knowable, this land will spew us out and our appointed times and the boundaries of our habitation will come to an end in that application there. Comparing these false prophets to a true prophet of Yahweh is like putting fire to the straw. <laughs> okay, my word is a fire. And these phonies compared to Jeremiah... Their lies compared to his truth. It's like fire to a straw. Verses 28 and 29 here. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Verses 28 and 29, verses 33 through 40. In the presence of such rebellion, the Lord will pause. In the presence of such rebellion, the Lord will pause what I'm calling here the oracular function. Okay? The oracles of God. He pauses them, He turns it off, He shuts down the ministry of His prophets. He creates a a silent period in which no Scripture is revealed. In the presence of such rebellion, the Lord will pause the oracular function of His true prophets and leave the people to their own collective ignorance. Wow. You talk about wrath? Shutting off the Word of God? Shutting off revelation from heaven to His own prophets, to His own people? Yes. Shutting it off. Think about that. Think about how I think this is worse than fire and brimstone. This is a worse wrath than raining down destruction, nuclear destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah. All right? Just click, going silent. Right? What we called in the military radio silence. Click. And no more messages, no more oracles. No more truth and leaving the people to these phonies, these liars, these minions of the adversary. Verse 33, when this people or the prophet or a priest asks you saying, what is the oracle of the Lord? <laughs> now, they may come to you, Jeremiah. You're, uh, you're presently retired. You're presently uh, off, off duty. 
And when they want to know what is the oracle of the Lord, you shall say to them, what oracle? (laughs) What are you talking about? What oracle? The Lord declares, I will abandon you. No oracle today. He says he's done with you. All right. Think how harsh that is. Because they're the covenant nation. Yahweh is not done with them, but that's what he's telling them in these periods of doctrinal drought. Then as for the prophet or the priest or the people who say, the oracle of the Lord, I will bring punishment upon that man and his household. When they dare to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, when he clicked it off and said, no, there's no oracles coming. Thus will each of you say to his neighbor and to his brother, what has the Lord answered? Or what has the Lord spoken? For you will no longer remember the oracle of the Lord because every man's own word will become the oracle. Well, God spoke to my heart and here's what he said. Well, God spoke to my heart and here's what he said. Well, God spoke to me and here's what he said. And you've got, all you've got is collective ignorance all being pulled together. And, and more often than not, these humans are all conflicting anyway in their falsehood. Well, God spoke to me and said, I should do this. All right. Anyway, that's how this chapter comes to a close. Let me, I've got to scare you, though, with a couple of texts. First uh, Samuel 3, 1 and Amos 8, 11. And, and I'm going to scare you in a sanctified sense uh, because the Scripture is designed to do this. First Samuel 3, 1. And just as you read this, understand, ask, is this the United States today? The boy Samuel, we have his birth in the, the background there in chapter 2. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and the word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. And ask yourself, is this our country today? Do we have a shortage of doctrine? Do we have a shortage of pastors? Is, is there just no more hunger for doctrine anymore? Is, is there... Is the word of the Lord rare in these days? I'm not talking about prophetic utterance. I'm talking about a hunger for teaching. And Amos, who reads Amos? We should. Amos was famous. (laughs) Did you know that? Amos chapter 8 and verse 11. And ask yourself, is this this? I don't know if Amos was famous. I just said that. Um... Amos 8.11 Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. A doctrinal drought. A famine of the Word of God. And when we see pastors that are dropping dead and retiring and leaving the ministry in droves, and we see younger pastors that are entering into ministry in trickles. What's the opposite of droves? There's droves that are ending, and there's small numbers that are creeping in. Okay, That's a frightening thing for a nation. And I ask myself, self, soul, is, is our nation under this judgment? And are we slated for destruction? Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you, Father, that whatever is in store politically, economically, militarily, temporally, 
whatever is in store for our nation, we are in your hands and we are your children and we have an eternal destiny and we have eternal truth. And I thank you in the midst of the famine, there are still oasis, there are still remnants, there are still lampstands where the word of God goes forth. And I thank you for a flock that demands truth, that rejects ear tickling, that uh, is not coming for the entertainment or the fun and games, but they want the serious meat of the Word of God because we've got difficult days in front of us. And I pray that we would be equipped, that our children would be equipped, because, Father, I believe what they have in front of them is far, far worse than anything we could even dream today. And so I thank you for your truth, and I thank you for Jeremiah 23. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.